Okay, we're in our study this morning is Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, but we'll be reading from Psalm 122. And let's begin by opening uh, with a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study. And we do pray as we uh, go through this history of uh, Jews rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that you'll give us insight into um, things that we can use in our own lives, uh, our relationship with you and your relationship with us and, and how we can depend upon that. We just ask that you bless our time and open your word to us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, uh, we finished up chapter 3. Chapter 3 was uh, its one of those, I guess you call it boring chapters. It's got a whole list of names that basically said, this man and his clan built this section of wall. And then it went on to the next section of wall and the next section. Um, it was not particularly interesting. There's not a lot of life lessons we can pull out of it. What I got out of it was there's some interesting history of Jerusalem, uh, why certain gates were named what they were named. Uh, to archaeologists, this is probably the best description of the, the layout, the actual physical layout of Jerusalem that, that is in the Bible. And so uh, it's, it's of interest to them. It's a little hard to figure it all out. I, I kept looking for maps uh, that would show the out layout of the city of Jerusalem that I could use to help understand the, the chapter. I think I found three maps, and they're all different. So they have a pretty good guess at what things looked like. Um, I did do a little more uh, research uh, Marie asked the question last week, well, how, how high was this wall that they were building? Well, they don't know, because it later got torn down, and so there's no uh, remnants of it. But in, in looking uh, for information on the wall, this particular wall that built in Nehemiah's time was 1.7 miles long to get around that whole city. So that's quite a bit of wall. Um, Over the next centuries, the wall was rebuilt, torn down by armies, destroyed by earthquakes, rebuilt over and over again. <clears throat> but in uh, 1550 AD, uh, we had the Ottoman Empire. Of, I think it's Suleiman the Great rebuilt the city. And the wall he built was two and a half miles long, so it, it was a larger city. And that wall was 40 feet high. So that's a pretty high wall. Um, and so if you go to Jerusalem today and you see these ancient gates and the ancient walls, those date from 1550. Um, one of the things that uh, we mentioned last week is you go up, uh, the last part of it we were talking about, the the eastern wall next to the Kidron Valley. We started at the south. We're heading back north, and we, we got to what was called the Horse Gate. And I mentioned that that might have been the gate where Jesus entered on the triumphal entry, because if it was adequate for horses, he could have ridden the donkey in there. Uh, what I failed to mention is there's another gate just further north, 
um, it was called the inspection gate. And that's where the Jews would bring in the animals that they were going to sacrifice, and the priest would inspect them to make sure that they were without blemish. That is, I think, is probably more likely where Jesus entered. Because if you go in that gate, that is where you would have uh, the market where they were selling approved uh, animals for sacrifice and where the money changers would be who would take the, the Roman coins with a uh, picture of the emperor on them and exchange it for temple coinage that they could then give in the temple. So I think on the triumphal entry, that it was the inspection gate that Jesus entered through. Would that have been symbolic that you know, he was the final sacrifice? Yeah, and I, th- and I think that... I, I, that's the other thing that I think is, is true is that he was the sacrifice. He entered through the inspection gate and on his way to the temple and, and later as for his sacrifice. You know, he was the Lamb of God and God brought him in through that inspection gate to the temple. Um, the other thing that we've been talking about, and we'll, we'll talk about it more today in chapter 4, is about the the political opposition all around them. And, you know, the Jews wanting to build a temple, and we talked about King Artaxerxes sending Nehemiah, who was his cupbearer. You know, he was an entrusted servant. He needed a, a trustworthy servant in Jerusalem because Egypt had rebelled against Persia, and he put that rebellion down. The governor of the Trans-Euphrates uh, had briefly rebelled. You know, the king needed someone he could count on, and so he had sent Nehemiah there to be the governor and to rebuild the city. Well, this is all political. You know, God doesn't really care necessarily about those reasons. Why would he want the city rebuilt? Why would the people, the Jews, want the city rebuilt? And so that's why we're going to read Psalm 122. So, and we'll read around. Marie, you want to start Psalm 122? Uh, yeah, we're going to start. Uh, a song of the sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Oops, sorry. You were a Nehemiah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together. which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May there be peace within your walls, security within your fortresses. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. Verse 9, so. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Okay. So, Jerusalem is not just a political city. It was the city where God chose to put his name. It was the city of God. All through scriptures we'll see that. When you get to um, the book of Revelation, 
the eternal state. What do we see? We see the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is God's city. And it was the city that was the focus of the Jews. They were commanded to gather there three times a year to celebrate feasts. This is where God's temple was. So it was the center of their culture, the center of their religion, the center of their nation. This was everything to them. And so that is why they came and, and worked on this wall to rebuild it. You know, as, as we were reading, many, many of the people who were there came from outside the city. They came from other towns. But they all came to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Okay, as I said, this morning we are in Nehemiah uh, chapter 4. And we'll be starting that chapter today. Um, we had ended chapter 2 by talking about some of the opposition that was rising up as when Nehemiah returned to the land. And so this chapter is going to pick that back up again. So looking at chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. So Sanballat seems to be the primary opponent. Um, we've mentioned others, but he's in Samaria. <clears throat> That's the capital city <coughs> of the province uh, just north of Judah, just north of Jerusalem. And they probably were the, the closest of the other nations to Jerusalem, and he probably was the one who actually had control or rulership over Jerusalem. And so he's most impacted by this work. Now let's go back to chapter 2 and we can kind of see how his opposition grows. In chapter 2, verse 10, um, Nehemiah just arrives in Jerusalem. And if someone would like to read cha uh, chapter 2, verse 10 for us. But when Sandal the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Okay, so Nehemiah just shows up. They don't know anything about rebuilding a wall yet. But Nehemiah is there. He's going to help the Jews. And Sanballat is displeased. Okay, he's starting. We start to see that he's not happy with this. Okay, going on in chapter 2. So I'd like to read verse 19 for us. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Okay, so now they've heard about these plans to rebuild the wall, and so they're, they're starting to react a little more. They're mocking them, mocking this plan of rebuilding a wall. Um, and we also see not just Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonite, they, they were the people to the east. Geshem and the Arab, the Arab, they were the people to the south. And Sanballat and Samaria, they were the people to the north. So they were all in, objecting to this idea that they, might, that they might rebuild the wall. But now, in chapter 4, verse 1, the Jews are actually starting. And they are rebuilding the wall. And so he is furious. Um, 
this is this is an attack on his power and on his influence. It says uh, my version, furious and very angry. Other versions say angry and greatly incensed or greatly enraged. So this is a very, very strong statement about his anger. And people don't usually get that angry unless it's personal. You know, we may have righteous indignation about something, but our natures are when we get really, really angry, it's because of something personal. Now there was a problem here because the Jews had a decree from King Artaxerxes that gave them permission to rebuild the wall and gave them permission to get timber from the king's forest to rebuild the gates. So Sanballat really couldn't stop the construction. He would have been acting in opposition to King Artaxerxes. Historically, back in Ezra chapter 4, we saw that you know within the 12 years prior to this, the Jews had started trying to rebuild the wall without having a, a building permit from the king. And the opposition had gotten a decree from King Artaxerxes to stop the work. So they started work without a permit, they got, and the opposition got a stop, stop work permit, and they stopped them by force. This time, the Jews have the permit, and they're building it. All Sanballat could do is get get really angry and furious about this. And so he vents his anger verbally. And we see that in verse 2. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? So he's surrounded by others. Uh, in my translation, it says brothers. Others say associates. I don't think he had possibly that many brothers unless he made all his brothers uh, officials with him. Um, the New American Standard says the wealthy men of Samaria. It actually, I think all the other versions say leaders or leaders of the army. And that's typical. Yeah, that's the typical translation. Apparently, um, the New American Standard is thinking of economic leaders, business leaders. And so that's why they translated wealthy men. Um, so he's got these people around him, and he's just venting. And so let's look at what he says. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? So he was a man of power and influence. The Jews, they were weak and feeble. And so he's ridiculing them for that. This word for feeble is used of plants that wither. You know, we've got uh, verses, they the you know, the flower withers and the plants fade and the word of God endures forever. So that's the, the word that's used here. Um, and he's saying, these Jews are nothing compared to me. What do they think they're doing? And then he goes on and says, will they restore their wall? So again, he's ridiculing their ability to do anything, let alone rebuild this wall. Um, third, he says, will they offer sacrifices? 
This one's not quite so clear. Um, there's a couple of explanations for this. One is, do they think that they can offer sacrifices to their God and have him help them rebuild the wall? Is God going to help them? Do they think they can have uh, success because of their God? And, you know, he's looking out over Jerusalem, which has been laid in ruins for 140 years since Nebuchadnezzar tore it down, and he's probably thinking, well, God hasn't helped them in 140 years. Why should he help them now? You know, maybe that's the taunt. Um, the other idea is, do they actually think that they're going to finish this project and then off, have a celebration and offer sacrifices of praise upon completion? Do they think they're going to finish? Let's turn in Nehemiah to chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. Would someone read verse 27 for us? And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in their places to bring them to Jerusalem and celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. Okay. So here's... <laughs> we've looked ahead at the ending. Yeah, they do finish the wall, and they celebrate. Um... And that's also, would someone like to read verse uh, 43 on this, in the same chapter, Nehemiah 12, 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, so here they are offering sacrifices. And so that may be what... Uh, but Sanballat is, is mocking them about. And they did finish and they did offer sacrifices here. Okay, going back to verse 2, the fourth thing says, can they finish in a day? Sarcasm. That's sarcasm. Do they, do they think this is such a trivial job that they can get done in a day? You know, we... We hear them talking about Romans and built in a day. Well, this wall wasn't either. Is it, is it that small a project that they think they actually can do it? Have they unestimated, underestimated the work? Basically, are they really that naive to think that they can accomplish such a big task? And then finally, he says, can they revive and reuse the burnt stones? So the wall's been torn down. The city has been burnt. That was part of the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the blocks they use are made of limestone, and they are weakened by the fire. Um, do they think they can find enough usable blocks to actually build a wall? They just got a pile of rubble. Do they think they can somehow magically turn the rubble into a wall? Now, when we look at what Sanballat says here, if, if any of these things are true, then they're not going to finish the wall. He has nothing to worry about. Um, and it may be that he means all this as a curse on them, rather than just mocking, but it's actually he's cursing their, their efforts. Let's go on to verse 3. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said... 
even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their break their stone wall down. So Tobias, his co-opposition leader, um, and he was nearby, he added to this mockery. He says, you know, even if a fox jumps up and starts running down the wall, it's going to fall down. So, yeah, they might be building a wall, but it's such a poor job of construction that it's not going to hold up. It's not going to serve as any protection at all. Um, now, one thing about Tobiah here, we've mentioned him before. Um, here he's called the Ammonite. Before, when he was mentioned in chapter 2, he was called the Ammonite official. And it's, you know, his ancestry here is a little muddled. Tobiah is a Jewish name. And if we go all the way back to Ezra chapter 2, when the Jews returned under Cyrus after Babylon was destroyed, back in 5, I think it was 536, 538 B.C. Um, they took a roll call. Everybody had to <laughs> prove through their genealogies that they were of Israel, that they were, you know, they could show their genealogy, the priests especially, before they could serve in the temple. And there was a man at that time named Tobiah who was not able to demonstrate that he was of the one of the tribes of Israel. Papers didn't have the papers. Yeah, he didn't have the papers. Didn't have the proof. Um, you know, and, and I'm thinking this this fellow here may be a descendant, and they may never have been able to show that they were of Israel. Um, one of the things we also see is he is related to a lot of the Jews by marriage. He's related to Eliashib, um, the high priest, by marriage. Their children intermarried. And that was a whole issue at the end of Ezra, was that the Jews were not to allow their children, or they or their children could not intermarry with the surrounding nations. So the fact that they are intermarried, does that mean that he was accepted as Jewish or by the high priest? So there's a lot of connections between him and the Jews, but Nehemiah calls him an Ammonite. He never says that he's Jewish. So as far as Nehemiah is concerned, Tobiah is not a Jew. He's, he's an Ammonite. And we will see that pop up again later uh, in, in the book. Um, so we've got all this mocking going on and it reminds me of the end of the book of Mark. Let's turn to Mark chapter 15. Because we studied Mark before we, that's what we finished before we got to uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we see this is Christ on the cross being mocked. Mark chapter 15. Would someone like to read verses 29 through 32 for us? Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
how far down? 232, please. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Okay. So all these different groups of people around Christ insulting him, and they were playing off each other, mm -hmm. mocking Christ. And that's the same thing we see here. These, you know, Sanballat and the people around him and Tobiah, they're playing off each other, mocking what the Jews are doing. Um, and that seems to be a trait of uh, unregenerate people when they're faced with what, what God is doing. Um, now we don't know how, we're not told how Nehemiah heard about all these insults. And we're just kind of assuming it was second hand that someone there reported it to him. But he will respond to it in verse 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So Nehemiah responds to their mocking with prayer. Now this is not a prayer for God's help, for God's protection, for God's encouragement. This is called an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory means to call down curses or evil on a person. Um, and that is what he is doing here. We have an example of Paul doing that in Galatians chapter 1. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. We will see an imprecatory prayer or imprecatory statement by Paul. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Someone would like to read those verses for us. And even if we or an angel from heaven to preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be cursed. Let him be accursed. That's a imprecation <laughs> hard word to say that's an imprecatory prayer um, Paul's life after his salvation was to preach the gospel so that people could be saved Christ died for our sins on the cross we believe in and he was resurrected from the dead we put our faith in him and we are saved we are not saved by works by keeping the laws by faith alone and as Paul was, as far as Paul was concerned there were people preaching, uh, perverting that gospel. And he says, let them be accursed. He was calling down damnation on them. Because to him, that was one of the worst things that they could be doing. So we see that there. And we go back and we see um, Nehemiah, you know, basically calling down curses on their enemies here. Um, but he starts his prayer... Um, with hear, O our God. And when he says our God, he's identifying with the, with the entire Jewish nation. And they're addressing the God who called them to be his people. 
So the prayer is based on the, this foundation of the covenant relationship between God and his people. He called Israel to be his people. And so that's the basis for this prayer, the identification of God with his people. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 26. We will see the statement here. Leviticus chapter 26. Someone would like to read verses 11 and 12 for us. Okay. I will be your God, you will be my people. You know, God established that. That's a promise as his covenant with the Jews. I've selected you. And we have this relationship. Um, let's also turn to Ezekiel. Now we're going centuries later. Looking at the future, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Would someone like to read verses 26 through 28 for us? give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Is that through 28? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Okay, so this is a verse that was given through Ezekiel probably almost a thousand years after what we saw in Leviticus. And this is prophecy about the future. And God still says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is a covenant that he has established and he won't change it. Um, And then looking... In, in Ezekiel uh, 36, verse 36, he says, Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So he will rebuild the ruined places. He is the one who is rebuilding Jerusalem because he has this permanent covenant relationship with his people, the Jews, and he has promised to do that. So when Nehemiah says we are despised, you know he's not talking about himself. He's not taking it personally, um, and he's really not taking it as being directed toward the Jewish people. He says it's really it's God who is being despised here. This is God's city and God's people, and they are ridiculing God through them, through this work. Um, 
So Nehemiah's prayer here is a defense of God's glory, not his own ego. And so this is a call not so much for vengeance as for justice. So looking at some of the things he says, um, first he says, return their reproach on their own heads, or their reproach or their insults. So he's asking God to basically give their enemies what they are wishing upon the Jews. Um, you know, it's, it's just to ask God to do that. Um, they're asking for this upon the Jews. Uh, he says, God, turn it over. Um, do it to, their en- to our enemies. Um, he goes on to say, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Well, that's, that's what happened to the Jews under Nebuchadnezzar. So now they're just coming back, but he's wishing that upon their enemies. May, you know, may they be, in turn be given as plunder into, uh, into their enemies. Same thing that had happened to them. And then the, the last thing, uh, it says, do not forgive their iniquities. Um, do not let their sin be blotted out before you. So here he's asking that they will stand before God in judgment with all their sins. So God will judge them justly for what they have done. So this is a this is not asking for vengeance, it's saying, here's what they're doing. You go you go to the courtroom, you stand before the judge, <clears throat> you will be judged fairly and righteously for what you have done and what you have said. <clears throat> so basically in in a sense the curse is God gives them exactly what they deserve. And God will do that. Um, You know, one of the things as Christians is that our sins are blotted out. When we stand before God, we don't get what we deserve. You know, and that's the blessing of of having accepted Christ as Savior. Our sins are taken away. They were judged in Christ, and they've been removed from the books against us. And so we are not judged for our sins. Christ took that judgment. Um, again, let's look at a couple passages where we, we see similar uh, statements made. Let's turn to <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 18. And would someone like to read verse 23 for us? Jeremiah 18, 23. <coughs> <coughs> Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Okay. Again, they are in it. What the prayer is is, may they get exactly what they deserve as they stand before God as judge. Um, there is. Uh, in 2 Timothy, we have a statement by Paul that's a little bit along this line. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Um, he's writing to Timothy and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 
It's not somebody should calling a curse upon him and saying he will get exactly what he deserves. Um, but that's the basic idea we have here. <clears throat> it's kind of like now with all of the stuff that's going on. We know God's going to take care of it one day. Right. You know? He's going to do it. Yeah. Um, we may not see it now. That's, I think that's the basis where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You know, as Christians, we are not to take vengeance. God says, that's my job, and I will do it, and I will do it correctly. You know, um, again, I, you know, I think in James he says, the righteousness of man does not achieve, or the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know, when someone does something against us, we get very angry, but it's not righteous indignation. It's selfishness. It's damaged ego. We want vengeance. God says, I will righteously judge your enemies. Leave it up to me. But think, think of the glory that God gets if we pray for our enemies, pray that our enemies would, you know, have, soften their hearts, come to him. Yeah, and I think you know, um, it's very often that uh, Christians will be wronged, and they'll pray for you know they'll ask God to forgive what they've done against them. And in that case, what we're saying is, you know, God, this person is going to stand before you in judgment. There are certain things that He's harmed me. Please do not consider those in judgment. I relinquish any right punishment about what he did to me. And I think we have the right and the ability to do that. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the actual... Because Christ did that on the cross, I believe. You know, um, I can't remember the, the exact words, but... You know, yeah, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Was, they don't know what they're doing, right. I was thinking a couple of weeks ago that the letter from Steve McClurg had the embedded video of the, the widow of the guy in Benghazi that was gunned down, mm-hmm. the Christian. Yeah. And she wanted his um, murderers to know that she wasn't going to, that she would forgive him right. and their family in, mm-hmm. in a vengeance back and forth culture. Yes. You know, that made. God may be able to use that to crack open the door. Right. To, right. I mean, not maybe. God can use those things. I mean, yeah. <laughs> make it that sound that way. But. Right, right. Yeah. Now, just to finish up this verse, the last phrase here is a little bit unclear, where it says, uh, in, in verse 5, it says, now, in New American Standard, it says, for they have demoralized the builders. Um, most of the other versions say something different. The literal translation is, for they have provoked to anger before the builders. Which is kind of, what does that mean? Um, I think the New American Standard is probably the worst <laughs> of the translations here. Um, uh, NIV says they're insulting the builders. When you look at a, a English Standard or King James they say that this means that they have provoked God to anger before the builders. 
So the actual attack is against God, and I think that fits in with what we've been saying. You know that this this opposition is not against directed so much toward the Jews as toward their God and the, the God of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and so the emphasis here is on the attack on God's character, the attack on the city that God has appointed to be the place where his name is is kept. Um, and so that makes, to me, makes the most sense because uh, and actually at this point the builders are not demoralized because at the end of verse 6 it says the people had a mind to work. You know, Later on they get demoralized, but not at this time. I want to look at another example of this. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is a very familiar story of David and Goliath. And he understands who is being uh, insulted out on the battlefield. 1 Samuel 17, would someone like to read verse 26 for us? David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for that man who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that we should defy the armies of the armies of God, the living God? Okay, it's that last phrase. He's taunting the armies of the living God. He understands that the armies of Israel are not Israel's armies, they're God's armies. And going on to verses 45 and 46. I'll read those. Uh, then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. You know, he's taunting God. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel understood that Goliath was defying God and David was so all this time we talked about David and Goliath it wasn't David, it was God and God (laughs) yeah Yeah. he just used David's arm and a rock to accomplish his will yeah, it was a miracle (laughs) using human human means okay, well we need to stop there so, uh, Jill, would you like to close the prayer for us, please Dear Lord, we thank you this time we can open your word and see what you have for us. We thank you for the unchangeable that you've been throughout all of eternity. You're an unchanging God and you don't change. We thank you for your compassion you have and the way you um, do have compassion on those that don't follow what you have for them to do and you are long-suffering. Dear Lord, just pray that we know that at the end you will hold the, hold the judgment day and head to the judgment seat. We just pray, Lord, that you will um, guide us, direct us, give us the strength we need to carry out the task you have for us to do. Pray for this hour and the next hour to come. Depression, we pray. Amen. Amen.